Father, it's a joy that you do hear our desperation. It's a joy that you hear our prayers. It's a joy, Lord, that you are imminent. You are present. You are involved. You are intimately aware of everything in our lives, Father. And you speak to us through your word. So, Father, I pray that as we cry out to you, that we also listen to you. I pray that as we come to our passage today and we look at this section in John chapter 4 over the next month, Lord, I pray that we're challenged by Jesus as we see Him here. Lord, I pray that we're strengthened by Jesus as we see Him here. Lord, I just pray that we carefully listen to Your Word, that I would carefully and faithfully preach Your Word and that those who are here would listen And we would all grow to be more like this Christ who cut through all the noise to what is most essential. I pray it in His name. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and just start by reading uh, the first um, several verses here. We're going to read up to verse 18 this morning. Over the next four weeks, we're going to walk through this whole thing in in, in a four-part series that I've called Sticking to Jesus' Agenda in a Culture of Division. But I want to begin just by reading what happened here. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All right. 
So, like I said, I, I titled the sermon series, Sticking to Jesus' Agenda in a Culture of Division, because that's what we see in the story about the Samaritan woman. No surprise, but the topic of a divisive culture has been on my mind recently. It's probably been on your mind recently. I've got a longer intro here than, than normal, because this is going to be a four-part sermon series. I, I want to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to division. And we're on the same page when it comes to when cultural division is actually a good thing, when it's a bad thing, and and what our goal, what our goal as Christians ought to be when there are divisions. So the first thing we want to look at this morning, and there's an outline in, in the bulletin there, the first thing we want to look at is this. We must divide. We must divide. You know, it, it's obvious to all of us that our culture is becoming more and more about this very thing. There's us and there's them. And you can fill in the blanks on which group you're talking about. There's black and there's white. There's liberals. There's conservatives. There's right wing. There's left wing. There's Gen Z. There's boomers. There's elite northerners. And there's backward southerners. There's vaccinated. There's not vaccinated. So like light and darkness, we, we can't help but become more identified by who we're against. Everything is us versus them. Figure out which category that you are in. Vodibakum points out that what we have done is created an environment where everyone is divided up into constituencies, which is incredibly ironic because that leads to stereotypes. And once we're there, we only see people now as stereotypes of the particular subgroup that we put them in instead of seeing them as individuals to engage. We lump them all together and then we can casually dismiss them all. So, so Vody, when he was talking about this, he was talking about the topic of social justice and racism. He was saying that he tries very hard to listen to the individual and not just label them with a lot of the labels that, that we have in, in society simply because they disagree with them or simply because they do agree with some of the things that the worldview that, that they're, they're talking about teaches because he's had that happen to him more than enough. And, and as soon as that starts happening, we stop engaging because we've decided that we know who we are, we know who they are. And, and Vody's ultimate point was we miss out on what the Christian's ultimate goal is, and we're going to get there in a minute. But we're divisive. Our, our, our culture is, is, is divisive. Another example here would be that the disciples, they just see a Samaritan. That's all they see. Jesus sees an individual who needs Him. So before we look at the passage, we have to talk about how division is necessary. Of course division is necessary. We have to, to make decisions for ourselves before God, and that's going to ultimately lead us to be on the other side of issues from people. Just being Christians demands that we divide from others and that we divide from the culture in key ways. Exodus chapter 23 verse 2 says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not fall in. You must refuse. 
As we think about it, it's obvious that there are becoming more and more reasons for those divisions as Christians because we are being asked and we are even being demanded to accept things that we simply cannot accept from a culture and from a government that, and this is the key point, from a culture and from a government that sees the world in a fundamentally different way than we do. Simply because you and I believe in a Creator God who defines things like manhood and womanhood for us. A Creator God who defines what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, who defines what it is to be married, who defines things like justice and what that is in God's eyes, who defines things like race, who defines things like our personal accountability to God above any human institution. We have a Creator God who has defined these things for us. We have a Creator God who has defined what love is for us. It's not up for debate. It's up for submission and obedience and acceptance. And so right from the outset, we're divided from those who say that truth is relative to whatever situation you're in or whatever emotions that you're feeling right now. We're already divided from those who say that science actually allows us to redefine gender completely. I mean, we're separated so often on, in that conversation from what science even is these days. As we believe that science is something that is an objective realm of study because there's a creator God who created the world in an ordered way. We're a science for many in our culture, including many of our leaders. It's actually a worldview all of its own, or it's a tool to be used for their own agendas. The Bible is amazingly clear. The, the New Testament is amazingly clear. Paul and Peter both, that there is a devil there is a lion who is roaming about in this world. He's seeking whom he may devour. There are spirits at work in this world. There is sin alive and well in this world. Christians, we find ourselves divided right from the very beginning. And the issue is that those that we're divided from, they don't take the Creator into account. There is no higher authority. There is no God who rules and reigns. And so what that leads to is people in power who think that they have no higher authority than themselves. That's nothing new either. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had no higher authority than himself. The Roman emperors believed they had no higher authority than, them, than themselves. It's just like the situation the New Testament church was in. We're, we're already so far divided, aren't we? So division is, is a real thing, and, and it's actually a good thing. And, and the divide that is between Christians 
and, and the world, and those who rule in the world, those kings, those authorities that set themselves against God, the, the divide between us is already eternally vast. So listen to what Peter says. Peter says, the time that is past, this is in First Peter, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So Peter is saying, okay, you were united with them and then something happened and now you're divided from them. That time is done. You're no longer in that world. You must refuse to be a part of those things. What's going to happen when you refuse to be a part of their world? You're going to be maligned. You're going to be ridiculed. Christians are going to have to divide over the truth. We're going to have to divide over how we live our lives. I've been reading this book by Glenn Sunshine. It's called Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. It's a really helpful little book, and it, it, it talks about how the early Christians ended up being called revolutionaries. The, the, the early Christians ended up be, being called rebels, and they came under the persecution in Rome because Roman citizens were, were to call Caesar Lord, and, and they were to give a pinch of incense in honor of the emperor. And Rome was frankly a, a, a pretty gross place to live in, I mean, in terms of morality and, and, and immorality. There was a good bit of, of freedom going on. But these early Christians, they could keep worshiping Jesus. It wasn't a question of, you know, they could keep worshiping Jesus. Um, they just had to also submit to the, gov- the emperor as someone who deserved the same level of obedience and reverence as Jesus. And it really wasn't a big deal to anybody else in Rome because, I mean, they already had multiple gods anyway. What's one more to just say, yeah, yeah, we're... We got this covered. We're, we're just covering our bases here. It's not worth the trouble that would come from the government if we refuse doing it. So no biggie. But in the early church, it was a big deal. It was a big, big deal. They, they had to divide. And so instead, the Christians called Jesus Lord. And, and they refused to give a pinch of incense in the emperor's name. They could not recognize that he had an authority that only God has. And when you read these New Testament Christians, they're actually very respectful on the whole as they chose to disobey. So much so that many of them just accepted dying as the punishment for dividing from the world. From saying, no, I can't go that far. I can't do that. Be holy as I am holy, God says. The God who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. By the way, just as an aside, I mean, this is where uh, a part of our understanding of a conscientious object- objector comes from. In, in our culture, if a person believes that something is truly sinful and goes against uh, their, their, their faith and and obedience to God, then for them to do that thing that would go against their conscience, for them to do that, it would, it would be sin. That's what Scripture says. 
it would be sin. And so for a long time, our culture has respected the idea of, of a conscientious objection to thing. But, but I think we're losing that too. I think we're losing that too because again, God has no part to play in so many of the leaders of our culture and our world's worldview. And so for them, there is no higher authority that you would appeal to. So we're losing that too. Without God, they argue, the ones in power are the ones with all the authority. And you know, I mean, we may have more technology, but again, things just haven't changed since Nebuchadnezzar was king. People are still the same. So, we must divide. We have to see that. Before we look in, uh, at this situation with the Jews and Samaria, you have to see we have to divide. We're going to come back to it at the end, but that leads us up to what's happening here in John 4. Because in John 4, what I want us to see today is a warning for us. There's a warning here for us when it comes to standing up and dividing ourselves from others. What kind of division should we be talking about? When it comes to saying no, when it comes to dividing from the world, what should that look like? What should our goal be? What should our hope be? What should our, what should our focus be? And so that leads us to John for, and my second point, my second point is what is Jesus' agenda? So this morning we're seeing Jesus, the King, the Lord, the one in charge who is always perfectly right. He walks into a very sinful, divisive culture. This is the kind of division that can happen so naturally to humans if we're not guarding against it. So already, let's begin to think of the warnings of how we divide. This is the kind of division that, that can happen if we are not guarding against it. This is the kind that doesn't have God at the heart of it, but it has hatred, it has fear, it has disgust, it has contempt, it has greed, it has power, it has all those things that have caused wars, all those things that have caused slavery, all those things that have caused murder and genocide again and again throughout the history of the world. I, I thought about giving some examples of this, but I'm just going to be honest with you as I, as I was thinking about what examples to give. There are as many examples of this kind of division, frankly, as there are cultures in the world. This is what we do best, you might argue. And that's not a good thing. We have to be so careful of our own hearts when division is necessary because these terrible motivations, they fit our hearts way too comfortably sometimes. So on that note, let's talk about the Jews and Samaritans because they're a great example of this kind of division. So we find Jesus, he's resting at a well. He starts up this fascinating conversation with a Samaritan woman and she immediately asks him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? What are you thinking, is what she's saying. Or maybe what she's saying is, how dare you? Like, what is even happening right now? You don't talk to me. This goes back centuries. This goes back to when Assyria, the Assyrian Empire... They took many of the Jews that were in the Sumerian region and they transported them out and they spread them out all over their empire to weaken 
that nation in that area. They, they, they transported them out and they replaced them with Assyrians who began to intermarry with the Jews that were there. And so what happened is the pure Jews looked down on these Samaritans. And over the years, it got worse. It got worse. So, yeah, the, the Samaritans, they also believed in God. D- did you notice here, she claimed Jacob. They, but they held to the Pentateuch. Their, their scripture were the first five verses, uh, books of the Old Testament. They, they did not give the same credibility to the prophets and, and to the writing. They, they held to the, the Pentateuch. We're going to talk more about this next week, but the Sam- Samaritans ended up building their own temple in Samaria so that they would be able to worship God because they wanted to worship Him. And if you read, the Jews actually came into Samaria and They destroyed the temple that the Samaritans had built to worship God. So we're talking talking centuries, we're talking generations here of of, of division. And I want to point out, did the Jews have cause for division from Samaria? I would argue that I think, yeah, I think think probably so here. I mean, given what I just, I, I just said, this has to be recognized. The, the Samaritans did pervert some of the worship of the, the one true God. I mean, they, they said it was only the first five books, the Pentateuch. So, I mean, we have to recognize that there are, there are times, even within the church, that we divide. So is there, is there a just cause for some of this division? Yeah, Sure. Absolutely. But as we're going to see, as we're going to see, even though there was a just cause for some division here, the Jews had lost sight. They had lost sight of the goal that God's people ought to have when it comes to dividing. They had lost sight of what the goal is. God has the ultimate goal of His glory being revealed through justice and mercy. And we're going to see from the disciples, we're going to see in this conversation, that had been lost. And so we have to ask, what is Jesus' agenda here when He strikes up this conversation with this Samaritan woman? Because you don't do that. Also, if you would look forward, I'm just going to give you a hint here. In just a few verses... He's going to remind His disciples exactly what His agenda is. Because He's going to tell His disciples, now follow me here, He's going to tell His disciples, lift up your eyes and see the field ripe for harvest. Now what He doesn't say there that we need to make sure we catch is He's saying, lift up your eyes in Samaria and see a field ripe for harvest. In Samaria, of all places, with these dirty Samaritans, he's telling his disciples, lift up your eyes here. And what you see is you see a field ripe for the harvest of the Lord. What is Jesus' agenda? In Samaria, there are those that Jesus is planning to make His own. 
but because of the hatred, because of the contempt, because of the enmity that was behind the Jews' attitude towards Samaria, God's agenda was lost in human sinfulness. It was lost in human sinfulness. The disciples are like, what are you doing talking to her? By the time Jesus sits down at the well here, there were Jews that would not even travel through Samaria because they said you would become unclean just by traveling through there. One rabbi said, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like to one that eats the flesh of swine. You go there and you eat their bread, you may as well be eating pig. You may as well be breaking the law of God. You may as well just go ahead and accept you're unclean just by eating their food. Now, obviously, not all Jews were that way. But it is an example of the strong emotions that people can have towards others that they disagree with. It's an example of how we can lose God's agenda. We can lose sight of God's sovereignty. We can lose confidence in Him when it comes to disagreeing with others. We can dehumanize Him. We can de- I mean, again, history is full of people who have been dehumanized. Cultures that have been dehumanized. Look at how the Germans treated the Jews. You look at how England, parts of Africa, America treated the slaves. And Africans treating other Africans as though less than human. And we're beginning to do that now, aren't we? And look at how we treat each other. So, Jesus comes in. And we can go go further than this, though. Because Jesus doesn't just talk to a Samaritan and offer to be that Samaritan's savior. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. Of all things, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Generally speaking, at this time and in this culture, a a rabbi wouldn't talk to a woman like this, just the two of them alone. That would be inappropriate. Especially not in a public place here. Like, well, this is is kind of a shady conversation, quite frankly. And rabbis didn't teach women. Especially not in a public place like this. So there's this other cultural divide that Jesus is stepping into intentionally. Intentionally. So not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. But we can go further than that. This was a woman who had had five husbands. In other words, this woman has three strikes against her in the Jewish mind that make this conversation shocking. What would drive Jesus to talk to this woman? What would be the agenda that would drive Him to have this conversation? I mean, it makes sense that Jesus just talked to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a leader of the Pharisees. I mean, that's respectable. I mean, he's got to talk to Nicodemus. But this woman, I mean, she is one of those dirty Samaritans. She's a woman, so she shouldn't be engaged with like this. Quite frankly, her morality is pretty much shot. So one commentator points out that except for travelers like Jesus and his group, local people generally went to the well in the early morning and in the evening. What local would be at the well alone at the middle of the day? The kind who might be an outcast. The kind who might be on the fringes of that society because she's man crazy. 
So even beyond the division between the Jews and the Samaritans, there is a hint here that within Samaria itself, this woman is divided from the others. She's got the scarlet letter on her forehead. We are so good at making divisions. In our churches, in our families, in our communities, we are at heart a divisive people. And so in this story, we have Jesus walking into this powder keg, this cultural powder keg. And what's he going to do? And he shows us his agenda. He is there in Samaria to be their savior too. That's what, that's, that's what we're seeing in the flow here of the story. John goes from this conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the ruler of the Pharisees, the Jew of all Jews, he's telling him, I have to be your savior. And then John immediately goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum here, to this woman in Samaria who has a scarlet letter on her forehead, and what's he telling her? I'm here to be your savior. I have to be your savior too if you are going to be saved. His agenda is to be the Savior. So throughout this conversation, he's going to break down many of the barriers that keep Samaritans and the Jews apart when it comes to worshiping God. And he's going to do that simply by showing he's the one who must be worshiped by both. He's going to break down those barriers by simply saying, no, it's me. Bring it back to me. I'm the one that you must worship. I'm the one who is the Lord. I'm the one who is the Christ. So this woman herself, she's actually going to try and distract Jesus from his agenda. Because that's what we do. We try and distract Jesus from his agenda. We go, well, what about this? Well, but what about this? Well, I got, I got, I got questions about that. So look at what happens. He tells her that he is the living water that she needs. In other words, there is something more important than drinking water. There is something more important than drinking this water. And what is that? That's Jesus. He, he is more important than even the water that she's drinking there. Let's get our priorities set right, right here at the beginning of the conversation. But the woman, what does she do? She goes back to their cultural divide. He says, I'm the living water. You should have asked me. What does she do? She not so subtly claims Jacob as the Samaritan's father. Did you catch that? Reminding Jesus that the Samaritans are not some Gentile group. Another divide. But they have pedigree too. They can claim Jacob. This is his well. What about that? I mean, we all know Jacob. Nobody, nobody, I mean, he's, 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 you know, he's up there. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about that? Are you going to claim that you're greater than Jacob? This is, this is in some ways, a, a distraction. This is, in some ways, a, uh, she's coming back at him. But of course he is going to claim that he's greater than Jacob. That's exactly what he's saying. He's not just saying he's greater than Jacob. He's saying he's greater than anybody. He's greater than water. Goodness gracious. So absolutely, he is greater than Jacob. This water is going to fail her, but Jesus never will fail her. Now pay attention to what happens next. She says, 
So give me some of that water. Okay. That sounds great. I want that water. We cannot miss what happens after that. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So today, I just want you to see, as soon as she says that she wants the living water from Jesus, Jesus gets into her business, doesn't he? As soon as she says, I want this thing that you're offering, Jesus gets so incredibly personal with her. He doesn't respond by going, great, I'm so happy, come on down. He doesn't say, oh, wonderful. He says, go call your husband, knowing full well that what he is about to do is expose her shame and sinfulness. The one you have now is not your husband. You are living in sin. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You come into the light. He's not saying this as a reason to reject her though. Don't hear that. He's not saying this because he's about to stone her. No, he's saying this because in order for her to drink from the living water that he provides, she must come to Jesus with everything that's in her life. Her sin must be exposed and dealt with. So if Jesus is offering living water, her sin must be addressed. That's what he's there for, isn't it? His agenda is to save completely and totally. His agenda is to be the Lord of our entire lives. That means He's going to expose those areas in our lives where we're sinning against Him. He must expose them. Do you want to come to Jesus and say, I want this living water. I I want to, 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 to have this eternal life that you're offering. Jesus is going to say to you, I see what is in your heart. It must be addressed. We don't continue. His agenda is to save completely. He gets personal. We're going to come back to that here in a minute. But God deals with the individual. He's not judging her based on the fact that she is a Samaritan. He's not judging her based on the fact that she is a woman. He is judging her on her sin. God holds the individual accountable for their sin. And right when he turns the spotlight of his convicting power on her own life, what does she do? She's going to deflect. She's going to try and come back to the cultural divide here. She's going to say, you can't say that we worship here. But again and again, Jesus is not going to be distracted. He's going to come back and he's going, I am the Christ. I'm 
the one. It's me. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's got a lot of questions. But Jesus is not going to be swayed from his agenda. He's pushing through her hang-ups about him being a Jew. He's pushing through her defensive attitude about being a Samaritan. Uh, Race is is being pushed a lot in our culture today. And the idea that depending on your race, you might be judged differently. Jesus is pushing through that with her. It's her sin, just like it's my sin, just like it's your sin that causes our divide with Christ. He plans on every tribe, every tongue, every nation bowing the knee to Him. Telling the Jews telling his Jewish disciples the fields in Samaria are ripe for new children of God. Think of that. I just can't stress it enough. I mean, you read the history of the Jews and the Samaritans. Go ahead and pick the people. When you say us and them, go ahead and pick the people who count as them in that statement whoever they are. And if you were a disciple, Jesus would be saying, those fields are ripe for harvest. And so, seeing Jesus' agenda here brings us to the close today, and, and I'm back to thinking about our need as Christians to divide. How do we balance the need to divide from the world, to say no, to even condemn others in the world? How do we balance that with Jesus coming into Samaria here, engaging with this immoral, sinful Samaritan woman, crossing so many cultural divides and offering her salvation? How do we balance these things? I just want to note three things here. First, we just talked about. Jesus offers her salvation but does not simply accept her for who she is. Jesus offers her salvation, but does not simply accept her for who she is. As soon as she asks for living water, He addresses her sin, the very thing that divides her from Him. Being a Samaritan did not make the divide between her and and Jesus. Being a woman did not make the divide between her and Jesus. Her sin, there's boundaries that won't be crossed. We're seeing the holiness of Jesus here. We're seeing His holiness as He offers living water, but He confronts sin. In fact, we don't ever see this woman ultimately accept Jesus in the story. Although we read that many other Samaritans do, and we'll talk about that in about three weeks. And we don't hear for sure, though, about her. 
And perhaps it's because of this one divide. This is the one divide that truly matters. If she did not come to Christ with her sin, then she's in hell, divided from God for all eternity now. It is our sin. It is their sin. It is their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Lord. It is their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Savior. It is their rejection of Jesus Christ as the King because they hold on to their sin that will ultimately damn everyone who is not saved by Christ. We can't act like that's not true. We as Christians must proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Second thing to note here, we're already seeing the clarity of Jesus' agenda. It's so clear. His agenda is to declare that He's the Christ. He's the one who brings eternal life to the Jews and to the Samaritans. He breaks right through the taboos of Jewish life. Don't talk to her. Because those things are nothing in light of His agenda. His agenda is to save. Today is the day of salvation. So even when we must divide then, does our agenda change? It does not. I can't say it better than Peter actually says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. To abstain, to say no. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is what you see from the early church. They would not accept the ungodly demands on their lives and on their consciences before God. So, so these early Christians, they generally lived peaceful lives. They were merchants in cities. They were shepherds. They were soldiers. They were bakers. They were carpenters. They were husbands. They were wives. They were mothers going about their lives. They were normal people. But they refused to join the sinful behaviors and beliefs of the world around them because they worshipped God instead. They would submit to the government, just as Paul says, just as Peter said right after the piece I just read, but they wouldn't submit when the government commanded that they do something that dishonored God. They simply refused. And they proclaimed the excellencies of Christ instead. Stephen, when Stephen was dying, he pleads to God for what? He pleads to God on behalf of the people who are killing him. I think he understood Jesus' agenda. Polycarp 
was one of the Apostle John's uh, most famous disciples. And Polycarp was martyred in the year 155 because he wouldn't submit to calling Caesar Lord. He wouldn't stop evangelizing in Jesus' name. So when they came for Polycarp, he actually fed his persecutors first. And then he prayed for them. And he prayed for his friends, and he prayed for his family, and he prayed for his church. And then he was taken out in public, and he was killed. Apparently, though, there was quite a revival that happened after Polycarp's death. You can read that the crowd marveled at the great difference. They marveled at the great difference between the unbelievers and the elect. I've been thinking about this. Doug Wilson talks about standing as Christians and how we have enemies. And I thought he said something helpful. He said, you know, we're the good guys. That means we fight fair. They cheat, but we fight fair. There was a great revival that happened after Polycarp's willingness to stand against the world. I think he understood Jesus' agenda. Last thing to note. We have to divide. We can't accept what we're being told on so many levels from our culture and from our government. It's true. We cannot go along. But don't divide like the Jews dividing from the Samaritans. That's the third thing. We can't divide like the Jews dividing from the Samaritans and lose sight of Jesus' agenda. Spurgeon was asked why he didn't get involved. This was in the mid, mid to late 1800s. There was a big social upheaval going on in England. And lots of churches were getting involved and lots of pastors were calling on Spurgeon saying, why aren't you getting more involved in engaging? It, this had to do with the schools. It had to do with the education. It had to do with all these things. And, and, I mean, of course he was involved, right? He, Spurgeon started several schools and several orphanages. But he said it was because Christ's church cannot lose sight of the one thing Christ's church is to be about. Proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Every one of us is going to be tested because we live in a culture that doesn't believe in God. You're going to be tested at, at your jobs. You're going to be tested in your neighborhoods. You're going to be tested just out in public. We're going to be tested. You know, Christians were martyred on completely made-up charges in the early church. You can actually read governor's accounts where they're writing to one another and you can read where they're saying that they were made up charges. 
simply because they were Christians. We're already being told to accept things that are completely dishonorable to God. And as, as I think about it, I mean, the reality is, let's be real, as our government takes more and more authority onto itself, this is going to become more and more common. It's, it's not necessarily so common where we are here, but just on the trip, reading and thinking, you know, Grace Community in, in, in California, they just won a lawsuit. They just won a lawsuit that they had to file because their government tried to close them down. I mean, years ago, there was the guy who wouldn't bake the cakes for the homosexual weddings. Churches in Canada are under attack. Pastors are being put in jail. And, and there's no consistency, right? We all know this. I'm not saying things that I don't think anybody here knows. There's, there's no consistency here. I mean, I read about places yesterday where strip clubs were given court-ordered exceptions and churches were not. That may not be happening right here, but it's happening. On a worldview level, we should expect that people who deny God entirely are going to set themselves against people who say, I have an authority that I have to obey that's higher than you are. Do not be surprised that they hate you, Jesus said. Revelation 17.6 says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Drunk, giddy, lost control, drunk with the blood of the saints. So, don't be surprised. We have to divide. We ha- there are things that we have to say no to. We can speak out against it. We can support those in government. I mean, thank the Lord we, we, we have opportunities, you know, to support those in government that we agree with. We can form organizations. We can file lawsuits like Grace Community did, like many are doing right now with the vaccine mandate. We can, we can do all of these steps, but we also live faithfully each and every day. We work as unto the Lord. We're active in our church communities. We're engaging with one another to grow in Christ-likeness. We raise our children. We honor our parents. We love each other. We forgive each other when we hurt one another. We sing songs of praise and thanksgiving in the face of a world that would want to silence that. We don't divide like the Jews dividing from the Samaritans and lose sight of Jesus' agenda. That is not what Jesus calls for from His disciples. He's our hope in this world. He is enough. Jesus is God's answer to all the wickedness and evil there is. As Tom Askell pointed out about our culture's godless philosophies, he said, Why in the world would you let anyone lead you astray from the simplicity and fullness that is in Jesus? He is everything to us. We feed on Him. We're about to do that now. He is our nourishment. He is more important than water. Because when you feed on Christ, when your body wastes away and dies, you're home. Aren't you?
We want people to see through us to the mercy, the grace, and the truth that are found in Jesus. When we divide, we can't do that if we act like the Jews and the Samaritans. That's what I'm wrestling with. That's what I challenge you to think about as well. We're going to pick up here next week. We're going to see more of Jesus' agenda as he talks about the right worship of him. You and I, we get to worship the Lord. That's not going to be stopped. It is not going to be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Think about the ugliness of our world, Father. Ugliness that's on display and the kind of deep-seated division between the Jews and the, the Samaritans. The contempt the hatred. It's what we're possible, we're capable of, Lord. We need Christ so much. We need new transformed hearts. We need a joy that is found in a Savior. Lord, we need strength. Father, we need so much strength. Lord, we want to live faithful lives in your sight. We want to be holy as you are holy. That means, Lord, that for some of us, that means we're going to have to say no when people want us to join them in sin. Whether that be in the workplace, whether that be in a school, whether that be a, in a home, whether that be in our communities. Lord, give us the strength to be holy as You are holy. To, to put everything, Lord, under Your authority. To obey You in every way. And to not lose sight of what You are doing right now in this world. Next week, Lord, as we consider that it does not matter where we worship, we're going to consider the churches around the world right now worshiping in Afghanistan, in China, parts of Africa, who are worshiping You, Lord. We can't lose sight of Your agenda. Today is the day of salvation. May Christ be glorified in our lives. Amen.